0: Good morning. morning. Let me get this out of the way right now. A lot of you guys have been asking me what's wrong with my hand. I don't have a good story. (laughs) I was playing soccer and I fell down. Um, brace on the wrist, no brace for the pride. I'm just going to have to suffer through. Uh, today we are, uh, week five of our series through, uh, the first, uh, through the New Testament letter, first Timothy, we're going to be diving in to chapter four. So I want to ask you, go ahead and grab a Bible. If you want to use your phone, that's just as good. Um, and go ahead and locate, uh, first Timothy chapter four. We're going to talk about that today. Uh, I'll read in a couple of minutes. You got time. Don't feel like you have to race. Uh, And as you're looking for that, I want to share with you, I've been getting different versions of the exact same question coming in over the past few weeks. It's coming from men, it's coming from women, it's coming from people with all kinds of different backgrounds. And maybe this is a question that's messed with you a little bit. How should I relate to church leaders from my past who sincerely taught me something that I now disagree with? And because of the series that we're in, And because our church is having a really just kind of big, open conversation about men and women in leadership, it's easy to make it all about that. But it's bigger than that, isn't it? And it's not just about religious stuff or church stuff. This is a question for everybody. I mean, what if your parents sincerely taught you something? How do you relate to your parents? They sincerely taught you something and you now disagree with it. How do you relate to a mentor who sincerely taught you something that you now disagree with? There are pastors and church leaders from my past who I dearly love, and I know that they love me, and they taught me to believe things I just don't believe. What do you do with that? The thing is, this question doesn't stop there, does it? There is a corollary to this question that we also have to ask. How should I relate to church leaders who are sincerely teaching me something right now that I disagree with? (laughs) Ha ha! All right, what do you do? You're thinking, Rick, I don't think so. What are you thinking? Rick, I, you know, appreciate you, man, but uh, I don't think you're wrong about how you interpret that passage or how you apply that passage. Should I be fired? Should you find any church? What are you? Uh-oh. <laughs> Tough crowd. All right. <laughs> but seriously, what do you do? Maybe it's the first question that we ask that's really got you in its grip right now. Maybe it's this question that feels like it's got you in a vice grip right now. And even if you cannot relate to these questions, I promise you at some point in your life, one of them is going to rear up and demand an answer. So what do you do? What we're going to read today, I think is incredibly helpful. And it intersects with this. Uh, We're going to start in 1 Timothy chapter 4. And... God wants to how do you know this? God wants to speak to you through his word today. Even if you don't believe that, I promise you, he wants to speak to you through his word. And so what we're going to read, I'm convinced, is incredibly helpful. And so I'm asking this, let's do this. Let's read with a disposition of curiosity, an openness to how God might want to speak to us about things that are really important. Starting in verse one of chapter four, it says the Spirit clearly says that in latter times. Some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. What are the latter times? From the biblical perspective, from God's perspective, the latter times or the last days, everything that happens after the resurrection. So we've been in that for a while now. And so these things that, are, that ultimately are demonic in origin, such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So you got these false teachers. They're adding all kinds of extra rules and they're being highly controlling. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God in prayer. If you point these things out to brothers and sisters, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished on the truths of the faith and and the good teaching that you have followed. saying Timothy, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. Focus on, on God's word, the teaching you've received. Invest some effort in this. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. There's a really godly man who once said, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. It is good for us to invest effort in our maturity, and our growth, our relationship with Jesus. Verse 10, that's why we labor and strive, because we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all people, and especially those who believe. Jesus is ready to be the Savior of everyone particularly those, especially those who come to him in humility and faith and repentance. Command and teach these things. And don't let anyone look down on you because you were young, but set an example for the believers in speech, the way you talk, your conduct, the way you behave, things you do, and your love, and your faith, and your purity, basically be an example of Christ-likeness. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching, to teaching. That's what we're doing right now. Do not neglect your gift, which was given you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself And your hearers. Before we answer our questions today that we're asking, I want to just set the table with this. I'm hoping we can start here. There's a difference between a wrong teacher and a false teacher. And if if you think I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth, hang, hang with me here. But there's a difference between a teacher who's wrong and a false teacher. Now, I don't know about you, but I hate it when people ask those super obvious questions that everybody already knows the answers to. That annoys me. Does that annoy you? I don't know. Okay. Well, even though that's how I feel about them, I'm going to do that right now. And I'm going to risk annoying you, and this is why. Because sometimes these questions slow us down. They force us just to breathe, to remember there are fair and unfair expectations. And sometimes doing what we're about to do, can help us identify ways in which unfair or unreasonable expectations have crept into our thinking. So here we go. I'm going to be annoyed. You're going to be annoyed. Here are the questions. Do I believe there is any church leader, living or dead, who is right about everything? Of course not. So should we be surprised when we disagree, or should we expect disagreement? Next set of obvious questions. Do I believe that I'm right about everything? <laughs> Have you, like, if you're just like, I know it, I'm right about everything, just, just stand up, just let us know who you are. <laughs> All right. Of course we're not, about, we're not right about everything. Do I want the people in my life to love me and accept me even though I'm not right about everything? Yes, and so do you. Do I give myself permission to learn, grow, process and even change my mind? Yeah. And you do too. And so if we already know that every pastor, every church leader, every teacher is wrong about something, why would we ever be surprised when we discover it? or even mad or upset? If I really want like it's so important to me that everybody in my life who I love, that they would just accept me and embrace me and all of that even when I'm wrong what would stop me from extending that to everybody else? If all of us, if we're giving ourselves permission to learn and to grow and to change our minds, why wouldn't we extend that to everybody else too? And so whether we're talking about somebody from your past or somebody in your present, what would keep us from having this disposition? Here it is, you ready? I appreciate you giving me the best you had to give. I've come to see it differently than you. I appreciate you giving me the best you had to give. I've come to see it differently than you. Remembering that there's nobody who's right about everything. That means every pastor, every church leader, every teacher is wrong about something. That means you're wrong about something. So what could stop us from saying, I appreciate you giving me the best you had to give. I've come to see it differently than you. And I understand that maybe somebody taught you something in your life and your past and you took it seriously and that resulted in things that you regret and that's why you've changed your mind and I don't want to minimize any of that. And yet, honestly, what well, could stop us from saying, I appreciate you giving me the best you have to give. I'm to see it differently than you. Now, let's ratchet up the intensity and let's really ratchet up the urgency. What if you think someone's not just wrong? What if you think they're a false teacher? What if you think they're a dangerous teacher? And what does that even mean? And how would you know the difference? Well, this is what the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy. He said, the Spirit clearly says in the latter times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. What does it mean the Spirit clearly says? I don't know very likely that Paul is referring back to something you can read about in Acts chapter 20, starting around verse 28 or 29 years earlier. He was with a gathering of leaders from the church in Ephesus, and he made a prophecy. He made a prediction. False teachers are going to try and make their way into the church, be on guard. And when they come in, they're going to be like ravenous wolves. Serious business. Now, I heard a pastor say one time, um, wolves are wolves in sheep's clothing, right? They're not the people who annoy the sheep. They're trying to eat the sheep. Like a wolf is not just someone whose sheep disagree with. They're trying to do harm to the sheep. So how, and we're the sheep. So like how do we know the difference? What would, should we be on the lookout for? The Apostle Paul, he gave us characteristics, qualities of false teachers. They elevate something else over the authority of Scripture. It's, its you, we saw this with uh, the Judaizers were doing this in the church at Ephesus. The Gnostics were doing this at the church at Ephesus. Those under the influence of Artemis worship were doing that at the church of Ephesus. Jesus wasn't the authority. Scripture wasn't the authority. The teaching that had been passed down from the apostles to the church, that was pushed aside and something else was elevated. Now that happened in the past. Does that happen today? Yeah. It can happen in really obvious ways. It can happen in subtle ways. It happens when Tradition pushes out and edges out Scripture. It happens when our preferences push out and edge out the authority of Scripture. It happens when cultural influences push out and edge out Scripture. It happens when political allegiances push out and edge out Scripture. Believe it or not, it happens when Allegiances to theological tribes, this can happen too. The theological, allegiance to theological tribes can push out and edge out the authority of Scripture. It happens when our love affair with power and control and just good old-fashioned getting our way pushes out and edges out Scripture. It's important to notice, Paul, I do not believe, is being hyperbolic. He says, the origin of this false teaching that makes its way in, it is demonic. And if that causes anybody to feel a little wobbly, I want you to hear me say this. You can't take Jesus seriously without also taking Satan and demons seriously. This is a big deal. These false teachers, they break with the essentials of the faith. They break with what we would call orthodoxy. False teachers, they tend to do this. They want to redefine something about God. And they redefine God in such a way that it gives permission to that false teacher's favorite vice. Every time, I promise you. And the way that they redefine God, it's gonna give permission, it's gonna give a green light to their sexual sin, to their pride, to their misuse and abuse of power, to their greed. False teachers tend to kind of create a hierarchy and those who are at the top are those who protect and enable their abusive, self-centered, anti-gospel behavior. False teachers have a tendency to redefine what it means to be saved, to be accepted by God, and to be accepted to the group, and they do it through a combination of taking away commands from scripture, taking away commands that Jesus gave, and adding their own rules and their own commands. And in their redefinition of what makes someone acceptable to God or acceptable to the group, Every time, I promise you, it serves their greed, their sexual appetites, and their lust for power. This is why all churches should always just be careful and attentive. Careful and attentive whenever allegations of wrongdoing are made within a church, especially against a leader. We're going to talk about that more in two weeks. We're going to have an honest conversation about that. That's two weeks from now. They're hypocrites who pretend to be something they're not. This doesn't mean that we have to be perfect. No one can be perfect. Every single one of us in here are gonna fall short of our own standing. Every single one of us in here are gonna do the opposite of what we believe and know to be right. That's possible while still being honest about it, still being honest about who you are. The thing that makes a false teacher false teacher is they are purposely trying to pass themselves off for something they're not. And they're motivated by ugly things. And they're liars who spread lies. And there are people who unknowingly spread lies. There are people who deceive others because they've been deceived. But that's not the kind of people Paul is writing about here. He's talking about people who do it on purpose. They're motivated by ugly things and they're trying to take something from the church. So I just hope we can see right off the bat here's just the difference between someone who is mistaken, someone who is wrong, and someone who is a false teacher. Big difference. Now, this is where I think our circles of context come in. You guys remember talking about these over the past couple of weeks? We're reading this chapter right now. We want to understand it. We want to make sure we're understanding it in context of the entire book. But it's also helpful, what are some other things the Apostle Paul had to say about this sort of thing that can help us? So we can really see the richness of all the things he wants us to understand. So we're going to read 1 Timothy chapter 4 alongside of Romans chapter 14. Because what we read in Romans chapter 14, the church, people in the same congregation, disagreed about really big, important stuff to them. And one of the things we're going to see is that we should never be patient. We should never be tolerant with false teachers or false teaching. But we should be massively patient and tolerant with each other when we just disagree with each other. When I think you're wrong and you think I'm wrong. In Romans 14, there are people disagreeing about big stuff all in the same church and I hope you notice the apostle Paul never says this group is right and this group is wrong. He only says this is how you disagree while everyone stays on the right track. Romans 14:3 says this, the one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does for God has accepted them. Now, we may not understand what's going on with this. They're having a fight over what's acceptable to eat and what's not acceptable to eat. And we may not understand it, but we don't have to get it to get it. There's a, there's a disagreement. There's a fight going on. And it intersects with cultural backgrounds and ethnicity and diverse religious backgrounds and probably some socioeconomic stuff. The Apostle Paul says: disagreement over things that are really important to you, that's allowed. Here's what's not allowed judgment, and contempt. This one person considers one day more sacred than another. This church loved to fight. They're fighting about different stuff. Well, I think this day is super awesome. Well, they're all great. They're, they're, I, it doesn't make any sense to me, but it was a fight for them, and it's important to them. He says, one considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Disagreement is okay. Be convinced without having to convince the other person. Now, that's super easy, isn't it? (laughs) Be convinced without having to convince the other people to agree with you. And you can share with me what is it that convinced you. And I can share with you what it is that convinced me. And we can do that without being defensive. Do you know why? Because you're not defined by your viewpoint. And I'm not defined by my viewpoint. If we are followers of Jesus, we are in Christ, we are defined by him. We are defined by what he has done. We're not defined by what we do and don't do or even by what we think and our opinions. We are defined by Jesus. Gospel community, Christian, what, Christian community, what a church should be is a gift to us. He continues, he says, for none of us live for ourselves alone and none of us die for ourselves alone If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. and all things we do, it's all about him. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Why do you treat them with contempt? For we'll all stand before God's judgment seat. It's written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will acknowledge God. We're to relate to each other as siblings, not one another's parents. Now, everybody in here who has kids in your house, or you've ever had kids in your house, do things get better and more peaceful when your kids act like they're each other's parents? No. No. I've had this conversation a thousand times. Have you? Listen, you are the brother, not the dad. You are the sister, not the mom. Have you had that conversation? It's always more peaceful when they relate to each other as siblings. We are to relate to each other as siblings, not one another's parents. Jesus is the authority. We are happily beneath his authority. We stand before him. And we stand with each other. We stand before him. And we stand with each other. And this is at the heart. This is the essence of what Jesus wants for his body, the church. He says, So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. Let us, therefore, kind of make an effort. If it doesn't work out, give up. Is that what it says? How much of the effort is it? Every effort. How much effort do you got? All of it. Jesus said, all of it. How much effort you got? You gotta give all of it. Make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. That's what it's about. Now, how do we how do we put a stumbling block in front of each other, an obstacle? Maybe a helpful way to think about it is how do we trip each other as we're trying to follow Jesus? How could I trip you? How could you trip me? Three things. Treat each other with contempt. Judge each other. Try to force somebody to go against their their own conscience. Treat each other with contempt. Judge each other. Try to force somebody to go against what they're convinced of in their own mind. We're just not going to do that around here, are we? Until we do, because we're not perfect. So what happens when we do? What happens when we mess up and get it wrong? We acknowledge it, we apologize, and we course correct. That's it. We acknowledge it, we apologize, and we course correct. That's part of what's included in making every effort to live at peace. And edification is building each other up, not tearing each other down. Doesn't that sound awesome? who wouldn't want to be a part of that where you're guaranteed to be in a group people are not going to treat you with contempt they're not going to judge you they're not going to try and force you to go against what's convinced you they're not going to try and tear you down they're going to love you and be at peace with you and try to build you up that's great that sounds awesome that's what jesus wants for us so if you feel like you're like okay i want that and you need a little bit of a handhold and understanding the difference. Okay, this is when someone's just wrong, and, and this is where someone is false. Wrong teachers are wrong about non-essentials of the faith. and We can give each other lots of latitude on that. False teachers are wrong about the essentials of the faith. And we cannot have any latitude or patience about that. And you might be thinking, well, I guess that means I can't be kind of simplistic in how I think about people and how I relate to people. It requires me to really think and be a little bit more complex. That's right. This is grown up faith, isn't it? It requires maturity, it requires wisdom, it requires having a conscience that is really calibrated by the gospel. Over the first four chapters, The Apostle Paul has used the word conscience quite a bit, and so I want to slow down. I want to talk about conscience for a few minutes. And getting misunderstanding this or or relating to their own consciences wrongly is what led false teachers to the destination that that they've reached. Such teaching, this false teaching, comes through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. A similar way to think about this is it's like anesthesia. It makes you numb to your conscience. Did you know there are things we can do? There are choices we can make. There are moves that we can make that we could be numb to our own conscience. All of us are vulnerable to that. So it's helpful to really be clear what is a conscience, what is it not. Your conscience is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not your conscience. The Holy Spirit is a third member of the Trinity. Your conscience is something. You are not a part of the Trinity. So your conscience <laughs> is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not your conscience. So what is your conscience? Your conscience is like the traffic light of your soul. It's that internal moral compass that's helping you make decisions. It, it's the thing that throws up a green light and says, yeah, this is right. Keep going. It's the thing that throws up a red light and says, no, this is wrong. It's the thing that says you should slow down. It's the thing that says you should change direction. That's what our conscience does at every moral intersection of our life. And we want to be able to trust our consciences, right? And maybe you've heard, just kind of go with your gut, go with what what feels right, go with your heart. Has anybody ever heard that? Maybe you've even, maybe that's been your motto. Here's something we got to come to terms with. This is reality. Your conscience is only as accurate as its input and only as strong as your integrity. Have you ever rolled up to an intersection and the light was not working? Or is working for every lane but yours? I needed an update. I needed to be reprogrammed. I needed to be recalibrated. Your conscience and my conscience is only as accurate as the input that it's getting. Let me see if I can. I'm going to use an illustration from the backstory of my life. I'm going to be a tad vulnerable, and This is sensitive. When I was a boy, my dad said things like this to me. Rick, if you ever bring home a girl from another ethnicity, I'm going to kick you out of the house. So when I was a boy, when I was a kid, and I saw couples of different ethnicities together, my conscience threw up a red light and said, that's wrong. That's because I had bad programming. I had bad racist, anti-gospel programming inputted into my conscience at a young age and of course i see it differently now and of course there's nothing wrong with that but it required for my dad for for him to kind of repent and change and and get better input into his own thinking and it required new better input into my own conscience does that make sense your conscience and my conscience is only as accurate as it's simple now this is your chance to be honest how many of you, whether on purpose or unintentionally, you have ran a red light? Let me see. All right, look around. Do not ride with these people. <laughs> a red light tells you to stop, but it doesn't make you stop, does it? You have to choose to stop. Your integrity is only, your, your conscience is only as strong as your integrity. How many of us have had a check engine light on our dashboard lit up? So long we've been ignoring it. So long we don't even see it anymore. Some of us have even put electrical tape over that. (laughs) We can do the same thing to our consciences. This is why it's so important. As a follower of Jesus, and we want to grow as a follower of Jesus that we're constantly downloading God's word into our thinking, we're reading it, we're studying it, we're submitting to teachers because we want to invest effort and align with it. Verses six through 11 in chapter four, are all about that. Here's my question for you, and you don't have to be a Jesus follower, you don't have to be religious in any way. What is your conscience calibrated to? I might take some time to think about that. What is your conscience calibrated to? And if you're trying to follow Jesus, is your conscience calibrated to God's word? Here's another question. Are there any areas where you have numbed yourself to your conscience? Like, is it possible to engage in a little gossip and just not feel bad about it? Be less than kind, maybe even be mean. Not feel bad about it. Engage in lust, not feel bad about it. If you're you're a follower of Jesus and you're wanting to follow him, are there any areas of your life where you know you're out of step with him? Whether it be judgment, contempt, greed, whatever. You're just, you've numbed yourself. Have there ever been anybody in your life that they're, they're trying to, they're trying to speak your language and they're trying to share some things with you that maybe they think you ought to pay attention to? Is it easy just to ignore them and to always justify yourself? In those moments, it's important to ask ourselves, have I numbed myself to my conscience? And in those moments, this is how we respond. We humbly repent. We humbly repent. We place ourselves underneath the authority of God's word. We read it, we study it, we let ourselves be taught because we want to align with it. Because we want, we want to be aligned with Jesus. So that's why Paul told Timothy, you got to keep, you got to teach all the commands, you got to teach all of God's word. And then he says this: Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. But set an example for the believers in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. Be like Jesus. And until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to preaching, and to teaching. There seems to be some textual evidence that Timothy battled a couple of things. It seems like he really battled insecurity and he battled some health concerns. Timothy is clearly a a capable leader. He's young, um, he's a gifted teacher, and he's a young leader who's leading leaders. And so that means he's probably leading people who are older than him, people who have life experience that he doesn't have yet. And it appears that people in this church were trying to weaponize his insecurities against them. Has that ever happened to you? People are trying to weaponize his own insecurities against him. They're trying to weaponize his age against him. And this is why, because they want him to shut up, to back down, leave them alone so they can do what they want. That's a tough place to lead, and I know what it's like. I know what it's like when people are trying to tear you down, nitpick you to death, trying to get you to feel badly about yourself. It's tough. It's tough to show up with a Christ-like example of leading, of serving, of teaching, but that is the context in which Timothy was called to lead and teach. And this is Paul's encouragement to him. This is Paul's instruction to him. Don't be assertive. Be an example. Yeah, there are things you've got to teach and there are commands you can't flinch from, but you're not asserting yourself. You're not going to bow up. You're not going to flex. You're not going to strong arm anybody. You're not going to try and show them how awesome you are. You're not going to impose yourself. You're going to be like Jesus and you're going to let that be enough. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the second half of uh, chapter 2 of First Timothy, and we looked at this word, authentane. It's the only time it shows up in the, in the New Testament. And the Apostle Paul said, I'm not permitting a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. And we talked about what that word, authentane means, assume authority. And it's strong-arming, it's coercing, it's, it's domineering. It's not just off-limits to women, it's off-limits to every follower of Jesus. We should never do that. And notice how Paul's instructions to Timothy are the exact opposite of that. You're not going to strong arm. You're not going to push yourself. You're not going to dominate here. You're going to be like Jesus. You're going to be an example. And you're going to let that be enough. i got to tell you, this is a message I need. I don't think there's ever going to be a day in my life that I don't need to hear this. I think we need to hear this. I think the American Evangelical Church at large needs to hear this because maybe for too long we've been drunk on power and control and forceful leadership and aggressive leaders who sometimes run over people to get stuff done. To the extent that that's in me, I need to repent and break up with that. To the extent that that's in you, you need to repent and break up with that to the extent that that's in us in any way whatsoever. We need to repent and break up with that. In the way of Jesus, in the gospel, leadership is pretty great, but it's never about greatness. And the thing that we need most from each other is our Christ-likeness. The thing that we need to contribute most to each other, the things that we should be able to count on most from each other, is our Christ-likeness. So I want to end the way the Apostle Paul ended this chapter. He tells them, "Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them, so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers." I'm going to spend a couple of moments talking about progress. In order to progress, to grow, you're getting better, right? And so that means tomorrow I'm a little bit better than I am today. Next week I'm a little bit better than I am today. Next year I'm ahead of where I am today. Does that make sense? So doesn't that mean if you're going to progress and if you're going to lead in front of people in such a way that everyone can see your progress, that he doesn't have everything all together yet? Isn't that what that means? That as a leader he doesn't have it all put together yet. And that he needs to be able to grow and other people need to see, oh my goodness, you're growing, you're getting better, you're becoming more like Christ. Having it all together is not a prerequisite for leadership in the way of Jesus. Having it all together is not a prerequisite for leadership in the gospel. And I know, I know that there's probably some of us in this room, you've been holding back. You haven't stepped up. You haven't served, you haven't led, you haven't shared some of the awesome things in your life that you have to share. And it's not because there's something wrong with you. It's because somewhere in the backstory of your life, something or someone convinced you because you don't have it all together, yet you're not good enough. And that's just not the way of Jesus. It is okay to grow and improve. It is okay to not have it all together yet. Do you believe that? So I'm going to ask you a question. I'll put you on the spot a little bit. Is it okay if I progress in front of you? Now before you answer, if you say yes, that means that you're giving me permission to not have it all together yet right now. Do I have permission to grow and progress in front of you? How about our other pastors? Do they have permission to grow and progress in front of you? How about our elders, even them? Do they have that? we got hundreds of volunteers around here. Do they have permission too? Seriously. How about you? Do you have permission to not have it all together yet? Do you have permission to grow? Because the point isn't to have it all together. The point is to learn and to grow. And to keep taking our next step of following Jesus together. This is why it's so incredibly important that we understand the difference between a wrong teacher and a false teacher. Because every one of us are wrong about something. And the point is to grow. And to be the kind of people where we give each other permission to do that together. We've been saying this just about every week. We teach what we know but reproduce who we are. We've got some incredible things to teach. We know the gospel. We've got the greatest thing in the world to share. But if we act like we have it all together, we're not going to pass along the gospel to the people coming behind us. You know what we're going to pass on? Our egos. And we understand this. This is the gospel that we're all far more sinful and morally messed up and guilty than we could ever dare admit. And yet in Christ, we're far more loved, forgiven, and accepted than we could ever dare hope. And if we don't give ourselves permission to learn and grow and progress in front of each other, if we try to act like we are better than we are, we're going to make Jesus look like less than he is. Because the grace of Jesus is only going to pop in your life and my life. It's only going to shine. The the truth, goodness, and beauty of Jesus is only going to be shown off in your life and in my life if we're open about the fact that we need it. Does that make sense? So let's be people who drop our guards. Let's be people who live shields down. Who refuse to judge each other who refuse to live with contempt, who refuse to trip each other up. We share with each other the same kind of grace that we've received with Jesus because we are people who are not impressed with ourselves. We are impressed with him. And we want people to know him. Maybe you've been coming for a while. Maybe a friend invited you. and they've They've been wanting you to see The Jesus that they are impressed with and in awe of. And maybe you've been getting your questions asked and answered. And maybe today is the day for you to cross the line of faith to say, I see it. I see it. And I'm ready. I know I'm I'm messed up too. I got moral messes in my life too. I got the consequences and the scars to prove it. But I've come to see that Jesus is good. And I believe that He lived the perfect life, that He died on the cross for my sin and that he rose from the dead, and Jesus, I'm ready to follow you. If that's you, I want to invite you to cross the line of faith and to trust in Jesus today. For those of us who are already followers of Jesus, it's okay for us to live like we need him. Let's do that. And for those of you who are still trying to figure it out, we invite you to trust in Jesus in the same way we have. Can I pray for you? Heavenly Father, God, you have given us so many good things. and We are grateful for Jesus. God, for those of us who are following, trying to follow, God, may we be people who live humbly and gently with each other. God, for those who are still trying to figure it out, God, I pray that you would give them the faith they need to cross the line of faith and just say, Jesus, I give my life to you. I believe you died on the cross and you rose from the dead, and I want to follow you. God, we want to be people who are in awe of Jesus. We want to be the kind of people who others see Jesus in us so that they worship him as well. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.